Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. All right, our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 26. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said unto the angel, How shalt this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. I'll just tell you a little bit about our speaker, Steve Angie. He and his wife fellowship at the Bear Lake Bible Chapel. We've known them for many years. He's served, aside from Boys Brigade and the youth work, uh, as an elder there at Hiawasa Bible Chapel for many years. They fellowship not too far from where they live now in, uh, at the meeting there in Apopka. We're happy to have him with us, so we're going to turn the remainder of our Bible instruction time over to Brother Steve Angie. Thank you, Billy. Billy didn't mention, and I've said this before here, that uh, he and Christina were the ones that got Barbara and I involved in the youth group and uh, at Hiawasa. Um, I had done about 15 years with uh, Christian Service Brigade there as a leader with Grant Scott, and then after a little bit, Billy and Christina left. Um, they came here. But we enjoy working with the young people. We, we used to say we might be the oldest uh, youth group workers and maybe in the world. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, good morning. Um, Barbara and I counted a blessing to be here amongst you precious folks. Um, we feel at home here. Um, and I appreciate the invitation by the leadership here to bring a message from God's Word. And with that in mind, I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Um, because much of what uh, we'll be looking at today will be from that portion. All true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are called to the following, which we read in Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, where we read, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, 
instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age. I don't need to remind you where we as true believers in Jesus Christ currently are in the present age. Our situation, I think, is well documented by the words of John 3, verse 19, where it says, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Most of the people in this world today love the darkness. As a result, for those of us who are true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, like it or not, we are in the midst of spiritual warfare. It's raging all around us. So we who are believers are actually behind enemy lines. And we are called to hold fast in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation in Philippians 2.15. And that's the theme of the message today, hold fast. I think it's important in this time, these times we're living. In Ephesians 6, verse 10, we are exhorted to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Well, this indicates to me that spiritual victory is not passive. Not every Christian would agree with that statement, though. Some will quote 2 Chronicles 20, Verse 15, which says, This is what the Lord says to you. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the great multitude, of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Their watchword might be, Let go and let God. And perhaps you've used that statement yourself in your life, but context is important here. What do I mean? Does it make sense? to expect the Lord to protect us only by supernatural means. If that were always the case, why do we read in Ephesians 6, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil? I believe that 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15, was regarding a specific incident in the history of the nation of Israel. If we as believers have no part in the battle, why do we need to put on the full armor of God? Can't we just turn it over to God, sit in our rocking chairs, awaiting the final victory in our complete deliverance? That sounds to me much like the attitude of the Thessalonians that we read about at the end of the first epistle to the Thessalonian church. Their attitude was, well, the Lord's returning at any moment now, so I don't even need to work for a living. When we consider the view from Scripture, Christian life is a war, a race, a fight. Of course, We depend on the strength, power, and energy of God in this life, but we should not be passive in this war, this race, this fight. 
I believe there should be no conscientious objectors in spiritual warfare. Believers are actually called to fervent action. As John MacArthur puts it, and I quote, We are commanded to apply ourselves to good deeds, resist the devil, bring our bodies under subjection, walk in wisdom, press toward the prize, cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and perfect holiness in the fear of God, close quote. So with that in mind, how can we be passive in obeying the commands of the Lord? We need to realize that what we read in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and 11, there must be a balance in our lives if we are to achieve spiritual victory in Christ. God supplies the resources, we supply the effort. We should constantly ask God for wisdom from above and for discernment in order to achieve that balance. And let's not forget the resources that God supplies. As documented in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, For His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Through these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust." We have great resources provided by God. Ephesians 6.10 says, Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. We must first understand that Satan opposes everything that God does, everything that God is doing. And we needn't look very far these days to witness the opposition against God. It's everywhere. Just one example is the opposition by the prince of the power of the air and his followers to what we read in Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Today, the opposition says, apparently there are hundreds of genders and more being discovered every day. People, or there are people who even believe that they can change from male to female or from female to male. And such a change or an attempt has never happened. It's not happening now and it never will happen. The result of these attempts to make such a change are devastating lives every day and with lifelong consequences. As John MacArthur puts it, and I quote, the believer's conflict with the forces of darkness are rightly called spiritual warfare since Satan and his evil world system are hostile toward everything God does. By nature, they are anti-God 
and antichrist. Close quote. You see, Satan is the antithesis of every godly attribute. God is holy. Satan is the embody or God is holy, Satan is evil. God is love. Satan is the embodiment of hatred. And certainly we see so much hatred in the world today, don't we? God redeems his children. Satan damns his. Jesus reveals grace and truth, according to John 1.17. The Bible says of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. That's John 8, verse 44. God gives life, whereas Satan breeds death. We read in Hebrews 2, 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. God produces the fruits of the Spirit that we read of in Galatians 5.22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Satan produces sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, according to Galatians 5, verses 19 through 21. God uses trials for our good. We read in James 1, 3, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Satan uses temptation in an attempt to destroy your faith and silence your testimony. God grants freedom from the bondage of sin, while Satan wants to enslave you to sin for all eternity. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, we read, With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Jesus is our advocate, pleading your cause before the Father. First John 2, 1 says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But Satan is an accuser, blaming you incessantly for things God has already forgiven. We read in Revelation 12.10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down the one who accuses them before God day and night. 
Because Satan opposes everything God does, he also opposes all those who belong to God and who obey God. As believers, we should not think that this is strange or somehow unfair. In fact, we should expect temptations and persecutions and thus be prepared for them because they show we are a great threat to Satan's system and an asset to God's kingdom. So how do believers actually stand firm and hold fast against Satan and his kingdom of darkness? To begin with, (laughs) from this portion that we're in, we need to keep our spiritual armor on at all times. I'm reminded of when the walls of Jerusalem were being rebuilt by the people under the leadership of Nehemiah. Because of the constant threat by their enemies, they had to wear their weapons while they worked with their tools and with their hands. We must remain fully protected at all times. (coughs) Pardon me. I think this underscores what we read in Ephesians 6.11 by the Greek word translated put on. This word includes an element of permanence. Putting it on once and for all is what it means. Stand firm translates a military term that speaks of holding your ground while under attack. (coughs) Pardon me. How can we know when we're going to be attacked in this spiritual warfare? We can't know, can we? We must expect it at any time and at every moment. And we must be prepared to stand firm, to hold fast, whenever each and every attack comes. (coughs) God's Word makes it clear that we must have a defensive strategy in standing firm and holding fast against the devil. We we read in James 4-7. Thank you, Tyler. Submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Again, I see no conscientious objectors there. Our offensive strategy is well outlined, I think, in 2 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're told in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11, to expose the useless deeds of darkness. And Romans 12.21 exhorts believers to overcome evil with good. Other New Testament exhortations call us to hold fast to biblical truth. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1, says, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you also stand by which you also are saved, if you hold firmly 
to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Hold fast to that which is good. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, but examine everything, hold firmly to that which is good. Hold fast to our confidence in Christ. Hebrews 3, verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold firmly to our confidence and the boast of our hope. Hold fast to our confession of faith. This was read this morning. Hebrews 4.14, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to our confession. These are marks of a strong and stable believer against whom the schemes of the devil have little effect, I think. Our enemy looks for any points of weakness to attack. If we are to successfully hold fast... We must examine ourselves, find what points of weaknesses we have, and ask the Lord to strengthen us in these areas of weakness, every area of weakness. We must never forget 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. <clears throat> Fear is one of the things that can hinder us from holding fast in spiritual warfare. Fear can paralyze a person, even a believer. Fear is contagious and thus paralyzes others. We witnessed a great deal of fear during the COVID-19 pandemic, even in the church. Yet we are told in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I like what Warren Wearsby wrote, and I quote, Fear and faith cannot live together in the same heart. Close quote. <clears throat> After he calmed the wind and the waves, Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 8.26, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Frightened people discourage others and help bring defeat. The military officers of the army of Israel had specific instructions for preparing to go into battle, which included what we read in Deuteronomy 20, verse 8. It says, Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house so that he does not make his brother's hearts melt like his heart. How do we overcome fear during spiritual warfare? Well, again, Warren Wearsby wrote, and I quote, If we fear the Lord, we need not fear the enemy. He goes on, It is good to remind ourselves that the will of God comes from the heart of God and that we need not be afraid. Close quote. <clears throat> In this spiritual warfare, we know there are many who plot against the Lord and against all those who belong to him. Yet we read in Psalm 33, verse 10, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. 
He makes the plans of the peoples of no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Isaiah 41 verse 10, I think, is a tremendous resource we should mind ourselves against fear. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil, we read here in Ephesians 6.11. Satan employs various tactics in spiritual warfare. One of his most effective tactics is to challenge God's credibility and God's character, his, motive, his motives, he calls into question, and he does that by questioning, raising doubts about God's word. It's the approach he used against Eve in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? And he said to the woman, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That's Genesis 3.1. God did not say any tree, but that they could eat from every tree except one. Satan then made an outright denial of God's word by saying, you certainly shall not die. Genesis 3, 4. He implied that God had lied when he said that sin would result in death. Then Satan suggested to Eve that God was withholding something good for her by telling her not to eat of that specific tree. I think there are those, no doubt today, who would say that God was oppressing Eve. Eve did not see the insidious nature of Satan's approach. Do we, when he tries the same with us? Rather than trusting and obeying God, Eve believed Satan's lies and concluded that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, desirable to make one wise. She then acted on her belief of Satan's lies. I like how the NIV translation reads in John 8, 44 regarding Satan. I read this verse earlier, but in the NIV it says, He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And here's the part I like. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Unfortunately, there are many in the world today who speak that native language of Satan. There's so much lying going on in the world. 2 Corinthians 11.14 even warns us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. How perilous that the prince of the power of the air, which is the kingdom of darkness, can disguise himself in this way. He is the great deceiver. Furthermore, the verse following tells us, Therefore it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. We pursue truth 
by knowing God's word well and by obeying it. In so doing, true believers are able to hold fast against the deception of the enemy and of his servants. We must also pray for discernment and fully yield to the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us if we are to hold fast to the end. We're told in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. This means that Scripture is the standard we must use to measure all teaching, all truth. We read in John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. By knowing and obeying God's word, we are set apart in the truth. We live in a world where most people declare their own truth. They don't all agree with each other, and they can't all be right. There's only one truth, God's truth. The word rebuke or reproof used in 2 Timothy 3.16 actually indicates that those who know the truth, true believers, are to confront what is false and all those who teach falsehood. I fear the church today shrinks from that. We are to impart the truth of God to them only in love, as we're instructed in Ephesians 4.15. An important part of holding fast is properly identifying the real enemy. We read in Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Knowing who our enemies are and how we treat our enemies are two important considerations for Christians today. It is God who works for us in identifying our enemies. His enemies should be our enemies. It is God who does and will confront our enemies, and we should not get in His way. Our enemies do not fear us, but they do or will fear God. We must allow God to defend us against our enemies. We also must never embrace our enemy as though they are our friends. Consider the consequences suffered by Israel each time they embraced their enemies. James 4.4 says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Our struggle isn't against sinful people, but against the evil system and the supernatural forces that influence their attitudes and their actions. We know from the Bible that among the forces who serve Satan are fallen angels. They are often referred to as demons. And some have infiltrated various political systems in this world and wield great influence with even high-ranking political figures. A biblical example is one who is called the prince of the kingdom of Persia in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13. Their influence is widespread, and we even recognize that many unbelievers are 
spiritually blind. We read in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning at verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We must pray for their deliverance from the kingdom of darkness, from their spiritual blindness. Like us, they can only be delivered through salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, beginning at verse 13, says, For He, Jesus, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus spoke very clearly about how true believers are to treat our enemies, his enemies. And here are a few examples. We are to love them and pray for them, according to Matthew 5.44 and Romans 12.14. We are to bless those who curse us and pray for those who mistreat us, Luke 6.28. We are to love them and do good unto them, according to Luke 6.35. And consider what we read in Proverbs 25, beginning at verse 21. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will, keep, well, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. In all this we must hold fast. Likewise, we must hold fast in our service to God and to others. How we look at our service for God and others plays an important role, I think, in holding fast in our service for Him and to them. If we consider it only a duty or a requirement, or we consider it a burden instead of considering it a great privilege, then we will not hold fast in such service. We must never forget that with divine calling comes divine enabling. Consider the words of 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, immovable, always excelling in the word of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We read in Galatians 6, beginning at verse 9, Let's not become discouraged in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not become weary, so then while we have opportunity, let's do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. And then I remind us of what's written in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining or arguments, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. And then Paul, in verse 17, wrote, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, 
Rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. That verse reminds me of the importance of holding fast in rejoicing, in joy, and in praising our great God and Savior, even in this darkness. Certainly these are things we should be doing before the world and before each other throughout these dark, dark days here on planet Earth. Our rejoicing in the Lord, our joy in the Lord, and our praising of the Lord are evidence that we are truly holding fast. In doing so, we reflect the light of God into the kingdom of darkness. Dear believer, by holding fast, you leave a righteous legacy for others to follow and for the world to witness. First Corinthians 15.57 says, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The final thing I would like to consider this morning is the importance of holding fast in our commission as believers to spread the good news of the gospel wherever and whenever God gives us opportunity. And I think a wonderful example of this is Noah. First, I think we should be reminded of the condition of the world at the time of Noah. We read in Genesis 6, verse 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. I wonder if God has a similar perspective of mankind today. In verse 8 of Genesis 6, we read, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then we read of Noah in Hebrews 11, verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. It's important that we consider all that God did back then before he moved to judgment. He commissioned Noah to build an ark, which became a symbol of life and salvation to all who believed God. But for those who did not believe God, it represented impending death and judgment. Consider what Noah must have thought about his assigned project. No structure like this had ever been contemplated. The project would take Noah and his son years and years to complete. The purpose of the ark was for an event unlike anything Noah and all of mankind had ever, had ever witnessed because it had never rained on the earth. How could the unbelievers then know to expect impending death and judgment if they did not repent of their sin? Well, it was because while Noah and his sons were busy constructing that enormous structure of the ark, Noah was also commissioned by God to concurrently preach to all those disbelievers about coming judgment. Peter called Noah a preacher of righteousness in 2 Peter 2.5. And one would think that the enormity and the length of such a project illustrated to those unbelievers the seriousness and urgency of Noah's message. 
Yet, they continued in their unbelief. Most, perhaps all of you know how long this construction project took and how long Noah preached. 120 years. What a marvelous illustration of God's patience with us and of Noah holding fast in the message given him by God for the world. We read in 1 Peter 3.20, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Have you ever thought about what went through the minds of those unbelievers when they experienced rain for the very first time? And they also saw the water rising up from the ground higher and higher. I have no doubt that many of them had mocked and taunted Noah during his 100 years of constructing the ark and preaching. Yet, Noah held fast. He believed God and by faith continued the work on the ark and he continued delivering the message God gave him for the people. Well, according to Philippians 1 verse 27, believers are to Stand firm in the gospel. Are we following the example of Noah? Are we looking for, even praying for, opportunities to spread the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? We are told in Matthew 24, beginning at verse 37, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Hold fast, believer. Your work is nearly complete here. Romans 16 Verse 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder from your word over and over again of the importance of holding fast, of standing firm as true believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we see the urgency because of all we witness and what's going on around us, we cannot help but believe that we will soon, very soon, hear the shout and the trump and be snatched away. And so, Father, we must be about the business of the kingdom. We must hold fast, stand firm, especially in the spreading of the gospel, Father. There are those precious souls who desperately need you. Many of them don't even know that as we read there are those who are even blinded by the one, the prince of the power of the air, the God of this world, as it's read. So, Father, we trust that you will use your word, Father, in our lives as we go forth from here. We know that your word will not return to you void, that you will accomplish what you intend Please do so in our lives, Father, and help us to be willing. Help us to submit, Father. Part us with your blessing, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.